0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jim Aloisi. You probably know me best, uh, at least for podcast purposes, as the co-host of the Transit Matters podcast that Josh Fairchild and I host about once every month here on Commonwealth. But today I'm here to do something a little different. In the spirit of this year's gubernatorial election, I wanted to bring to the microphone someone whose career in Massachusetts politics spanned over a quarter of a century, a political force unlike any other from the early 1960s through the 1990s. My hope is that our conversation today will enlighten and inform you and get you thinking more about the rich history of Bay State politics and how certain events in the past may provide a gloss on events happening today. Our guest today was Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts from 1963 to 65, and Attorney General from 1975 to 1987. His three-term tenure as Massachusetts Attorney General is generally recognized by people in the legal and judicial communities as the gold standard of excellence in public service. And full disclosure, I was uh, uh, Assistant Attorney General for a few of those years. They took a flyer on me, and I would think a few people would think it turned out okay. Our guest was the Democratic nominee for governor in 1964, losing what remains today as the second closest election in the state's gubernatorial history. And He ran for governor again in 1970 and 1990, and famously lost a, a bruising, nasty battle for the Office of Attorney General in 1966. So if I'm a little starstruck on this podcast, it's because today it's my pleasure to welcome Frank Bellotti former Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor, former Massachusetts Attorney General, my mentor and inspiration. Welcome, Frank.
1: It's good to be back, Jimmy, after so many years with you. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Now, let me ask a first question. Is this your first
1: podcast? This kind of a broadcast? Yeah. I'd say yes.
0: Okay, that's good. It's a good distinction for Commonwealth Magazine. I want to begin, I want to go back to the 1960s with you, Frank. You were a lawyer, you had a practice in Quincy, I know you ran, I think, in 1958 for district attorney in Norfolk County, uh, but your real sort of beginning as a successful political leader, I think, begins in 1962 when you ran successfully for lieutenant governor. Can you talk a little bit about what drove you to enter politics? You were a very smart, successful lawyer, but politics seemed to be in your blood.
1: I think, Jim, we have to go back to 1958. Okay. Uh I had just moved to Quincy and I was practicing law. I had opened an office there and no one knew who I was. So I decided to run for district attorney. It was a very solid Republican county and uh, there was no nominee Democrat. So I put up all these signs that said attorney. Francis X. Bellotti, so that everyone would know there's a lawyer over there in Quincy you can <laughs> always go to. And then a very strange thing happened. I started campaigning uh, just to get my name around, and all of a sudden I got to believe in that particular philosophy. Uh, I grew up poor, and uh, I decided I could do things For poor people, middle class people, people like me. Uh, My father came from Italy and was gassed in the First World War and was in the hospital. And my mother worked to support the family. So it became such a compulsive thing that if, when I started, just to get my name around, after having campaigned for maybe two or three weeks, mm-hmm. if you had said to me, I'll give you a million dollars to drop out and never run, I would have turned it down. Mm-hmm. You got to believe things. And when I ran for Lieutenant Governor in 1962, I was, I suppose, <coughs> statewide a virgin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had... Uh, Organized the floor of the Democratic Convention in those days a convention had a great deal more significance than it does now Yeah, now you have what about 5,000 delegates you have three heads. You can be a delegate right back then you only had the number of delegates that your nominee of our party in the last gubernatorial election got and So we had about 1700
0: much more of an insider's game in those days? Well, yeah? it had a great deal more significance.
1: Right. Because the, the endorsement of the convention was important. It mattered. It's not that important. It doesn't mean that much anymore. Right. But in those That's days it did, because it was made up of all the town and democratic ward and city committees. So, I organized the floor, and I was, you know, the classic outsider. No one wanted me. And I had, I think, five opponents. But to give you an insight into the stupidity of a great many politicians, no one went up to the convention hall. I went up a week ahead of time mm-hmm. and I gave the janitor $300 and I said, let me stay here and tell me where everybody is. Because I knew it would all hit the fan, they're never going to let me get the nomination. And before that, uh, probably a week before, I sat down with Ann Buckley, who became the senator from Brockton, and we counted all the delegates. And these aren't the exact figures, but they're close. Out of maybe 1,632 delegates, I had 1,140, mm-hmm. and no one even knew my name. So How now, did that happen? I went... To every town, towns like Beckett, Savoy, Florida, Cummington that no one's even heard of, each one of those mountain towns has one delegate. I went to everybody's house. Mm -hmm. And then the convention started, and I think Lieutenant Governor McLaughlin was running against Chubb Peabody at the time. And I, by the time the convention came, I had the janitor show me where everybody was. I had him blindfold me (laughs) because I knew when it hit the fan, I was going to have to move fast. So I was able to touch where the UPI was, where the Globe was, where the Herald, where Channel 5 was, where Ted Kennedy was, where Chubb Heavey was, and they called us all in. And each one of the other candidates, except Bernie Clary from Lynn. Uh, I mean, from Edelboro withdrew in favor of party unity. Well, I was never a big party unity guy. So I stayed in and uh, they said to me, "Are you leaving?" I said, "No, I'm staying in. I said, I killed myself for seven months, stayed away from my family to get here. I'm not leaving. And so I said to Ed McLaughlin, you told me you were coming out of the West like a lion, and you were never going to back down. He said, well, these party leaders asked me for the kit- ticket of Peabody and McLaughlin. You know, excuse my expression. Yeah. I said, You mean these horse?" <laughs> the Speaker of the House was there, Majority Leader, President of the Senate. So I went outside and I won it in the sixth Senatorial District. I had the whole place organized. I had somebody in each town, in each ward. And in North Adams, it has 11 wards. I had somebody in each one of those wards. So I won that. And I had the nomination and I ran against Frank Perry, who was in those days a big Republican reformer. And I won.
0: And you won, and you, uh, you spent two years as Lieutenant Governor with Endicott Peabody as governor, and I, you guys did not have per, perhaps the strongest relationships.
1: Well, we got along fine, except he wasn't the greatest speaker in the world, and when we had a democratic function that put me behind the curtain someplace <laughs> and after a while, and I remember saying this to Sylvester Sylvia from uh New Bedford, I said, you know, he came up to see me to kind of make friends with me and Peabody. Mm-hmm. and I said to him, you know, Sylvester, if they keep treating me this way, I'm gonna run against the governor. He went back and told them that, and they laughed at him, because that's never been done before or since historically in this country, a lieutenant governor running against the governor's own party so I went to the convention and naturally I didn't get all those votes the governor has power sure. you know he can make uh state police lieutenant he can do all kinds of things so I lost the convention obviously and uh I ran the primary and I won the primary you did
0: now can I I want to
1: put a pause on this for
0: one second I was reading a biography of uh to prepare for this, biography of John Volpe. And his biographer, a woman named Kathleen Kilgore, here's what she writes about you. She says, Bilotti was well regarded in democratic circles, but unwilling to wait his turn. Now, when I read that, I thought, Ayanna Presley, that this phenomenon of a younger person, ethnic or different race not wanting to quote-unquote wait their turn. It's true in 1964. It's true in 2018. Tell me your thoughts.
1: In retrospect, I should have waited, but I was knocking over chairs in those days. I was young and I was ambitious and I was just tired. They did things to me like one of the guys in the PD's administration You remember, in those days, low number plates were a real big deal. I have one. You have one, and you have it (laughs) since then, right? I have it since then. Well, From Frank Sargent. From Frank Sargent. What they did, when I was lieutenant governor, they'd send me a pink copy saying, Dear Mr. Jones, here is your low number plate, E745. The problem was, they never sent out the original. So they were doing things like that to me. So finally I told them I'm running. And then I ran. I beat beat Peavy in the primary and had John Volpe. Then they started the Mafia Rumor.
0: So let's talk about that. What what was it like to run in 1964 as an Italian-American who gets smeared that way? Does does that stay with you the rest of Uh, your life? It stays
1: great. There's still some remnants of that. You know, I was a dark Italian, and my mother always lived in an Irish neighborhood. <laughs> so I had to fight everybody every time we moved into a new neighborhood. But uh, yeah, it, 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 what happened was there was a guy named Captain Cruscio in the state police. He was a Volpe person. And he would take two people and go down Route 109 from Kenmore Square down to Bellingham near the Rhode Island line, and one guy would go into one end of the bar, one would go to the other end of the bar, and I would come on, or I wouldn't come on, and the guy would say, Jesus, I'm going to vote for Bilotti," And the would say, you know, I was too, except my uncle plays cards with all the Mafia guys, and Bilotti's there every Saturday night. Then they'd leave and go into the next bar, and the next bar. And then they They would call talk shows and do the same thing. It cost me, I think I lost almost 300,000 votes from the Thursday before the election to the election. Mm. It got so bad that one of the television guys that I was friendly with said, you know, Frank, we voted for you in the primary, 22 people in our family. After all of that, we had our doubts, so we all voted for Volby. Mm-hmm. And that I lost by 22,000 votes yeah. out of almost 3 million. That's the second... And the... that stayed with me. And in 66, it was aggravated.
0: So in, let me just say this. So many people today who don't have long memories of Massachusetts politics, if they hear the name Elliot Richardson, they immediately associate him with the Nixon administration and a man of high moral character because he resigned and wouldn't fire Archibald Cox. You have a very different uh, experience with Elliot Richardson in 1966. Talk about that a
1: little yeah, bit. Yeah, I don't really bear him any ill will. You know, if you get older, you get a little mellower. And I'm That's 95, good. so I'm real mellow.
0: That's good to know. I'm, <laughs> I, I aspire to this. <laughs> so...
1: Uh, Elliot accused me on the Thursday before election of a conflict of interest, and it cost me dearly. Everybody else lost by, I think, 250,000 votes. I lost by about 83,000.
0: Ed Brook wrote a memoir in which he remembered that event. He was the attorney general then, and he said that Richardson provided him with absolutely no evidence of it, and he refused to deal with it.
1: Oh, no, he didn't refuse. He He convened a grand jury, jury. but he said he had no evidence. And he invited me to appear before it, and I said, I said, Eddie, I'm not going for any grand Republican grand jury that you're running. I don't trust you, and I'm not going.
0: And of course, nothing ever came out of that.
1: No, at the end, after the election, they had a blue ribbon commission with uh, Judge Pillsbury, the dean of the BU Law School, and one other classic integrity guy. And they cleared me completely. But that was after the election. Sure.
0: Can I go back to 64? I want to talk a little bit about you and Volpe and the debate you had in the sales tax. You were against the sales. Just to enlighten everybody, there was no sales tax in Massachusetts at that time in 1964. You were against it. He was for it. So I just want to underscore for listeners: the Republican nominee was for the sales tax. The Democratic nominee against it. I, and I, I think John Collins may have played some role. In I, Let's talk about I, that a little I, bit.
1: I made John Collins nervous. I was probably too aggressive in those days, yeah. and I was in John's way, uh-huh. way of uh-huh. his ambitions. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we're talking about. I was against Americans. the sales tax because I felt if they once put it on it would keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which is what happened. Yeah. And I felt it was a uh, kind of an unfair tax for middle class people. Well,
0: it hits wealthy people exactly the same way as it hits poor people, which is why it's really sort of pretty regressive, right?
1: It's very regressive, yeah. but that hurt.
0: How could a Republican nominee in 1964 be for a sales tax? How, how did the,
1: globe was the Globe was for it. Uh, uh, the Globe was for it, except for printing machinery. <laughs> they wanted that <laughs> exempt.
0: <laughs> so, in, after '66, you've been through this sort of bruising environment where you've been, you know, unfairly treated. You've been very aggressive. You've lost two of the closest elections in state's history. Many people would have said, "Going back to Quincy and making a lot of money as a lawyer, see you later." You did go back to Quincy and you did very well as a lawyer, but you came back to the arena in 1970 and then what
1: what happened yeah. was in the 70 election
0: where by the way dear listeners so the 70 primary for governor Kevin White the then Senate president Morris Donahue Frank Bellotti
1: Kenny O'Donnell
0: former JFK uh, chief secretary Kenny O'Donnell yeah.
1: so and uh, what happened I finished third mm-hmm. in the primary and I remember in the bedroom saying to my wife, it's over. It's out of my system. I'm going back and make money. And then yeah. Elliot Richardson was up for Secretary of State, I think, under Nixon. Uh,
0: well, Attorney General.
1: Well, he had both. Yep. But I he think this many, was...
0: He had many cabinet positions.
1: Yeah, so I think that. it was Secretary of State, but it could, could have been Attorney General. And they started writing, the Washington Post wrote an article about how he had accused me of a conflict of interest just before the election and the Globe picked it up. There was a reporter named Tommy Sullivan Mm -hmm. and he had a headline about how uh, they were attacking Richardson for what he did to me in 66. And they kept writing and I started to think about it. And there were about four or five people, and I said to myself, you know, with four or five people, if I can get 35, 40 percent of the vote, I can get the nomination.
0: I'm talking about 1974 four. running for... 1974. Luzardy. Attorney General. There were about Attorney General. Cast yeah. of Thousands running, George Sacco. Former state legislator was... He was still a
1: state leg. He was chair- vice chairman of Ways and Means. Ways and
0: means. means, thought to be a preeminent candidate for that.
1: Yeah. There was uh, a kid named Murphy who was a state senator from Westwood, mm. the mayor of Somerville, uh, Lester oh, Ralph. Oh, Lester Ralph at the time. There yeah. were five. Right. And uh, I remember Bob Crane and I were taking polls. I'd take it on a Saturday. He'd take it on a Thursday. And I was always 20 points ahead, so I never spent a lot of money, and uh, our polls were pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. But then the election came, and I started getting hammered. Uh, I think the Globe hammered you pretty hard. And the Globe were, and Channel and, 5. And they endorsed uh, your opponent, Josiah Spalding. Right. I think what saved me, I'm trying to think now, they had an article in the New Bedford Standard Times with all Italian names, it didn't accuse me of anything. It said uh, Frank Bellotti's cousin lives across the street from Tony Donatly, who was indicted by a federal grand jury. Not that I did anything, but yeah. all those Italian names. And Bellotti voted for an extra work order mm-hmm. for Maranucci brothers. And then they, they printed that in the New Bedford Standard Times. Then they print, reprinted it in the Globe and had a little thing like this you could hardly read that says... Uh, political ad (laughs) and then they did it in all of the North Shore papers Mm -hmm. and then they did it in the Malden news in Medford Mercury and they did it every place they killed me with it and I lost a couple hundred thousand votes quickly on account of that and then came 74 and this is I think why you shouldn't burn your bridges all the people that were against me, supported me. And I remember going up to the Lowell newspaper. Lowell Sun? Lowell Sun. And Clem Costello was mm-hmm. sitting at the head table. He owned it. And 21 editors around here. And he starts off by saying, Mr. Blotti, and that was one of the papers that reprinted the mm-hmm. article. He said, Mr. Blotti, do you think the mafia room will hurt you? Uh, you'll Excuse my language again. And I said, yes, I do, and you should know that very well, you son of a bitch, because you helped start it. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, I walked out, and I said, it's over, I'm gone. (laughs) I leave the room, and he says to his uh, editors, Jesus, you know, you're going to have to edit this again. (laughs) I said, he, he said, that kid's got a lot of balls. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm going to endorse him. And the next day, he had 24 pictures of me in the little son in a cartoon with the rain coming down, and it's titled, with a hat on, Bilardi comes in out of the rain.
0: <laughs> well, I think they were impressed probably by at least the power of your persistence, right? You're just yeah. you're a persistent Well
1: who, who else has lost three times and <laughs> then run again? <laughs> and then... Uh, Dave Frickman, who owned them who also had printed that thing. He saved me. Mm-hmm. When the globe was killing me at the end in seventy four, he printed a French front page editorial uh, supporting me.
0: And you won that election by what, about eighty
1: thousand votes? No. Not even? Seventeen
0: thousand. Seventeen thousand. I'm a little off. Um, I'm not sure I won it, by the way. <laughs> well, I think you had three terms in office, I think you did. Um what was it like winning that, being Attorney General? After all those years in the wilderness,
1: uh, what was what happened that like? was, I remember having lunch with Dave Berkman, and they never even covered my headquarters yeah. in 70. Channel 5 didn't even cover it, so yeah. I wouldn't let them cover it in 74. And what happened, I'm sitting with Dave Berkman, and I said, you know... When I was lieutenant governor, I was always trying to figure out what was politically correct or wise. I said, they killed me so much in this election that I'm going to do exactly what I want, and I don't care who likes it and who doesn't like it. If I believe it's right, I'm going to do it, and I'm not going to worry about the politics. Mm-hmm. And then, actually, even though it was out of peak, it was the best thing I ever did, because people get to trust you. They know if you're not going to go in the tank on this case, you're not going to do it against them.
0: Well, and, you know, if I can say, again, it's not a not a particularly impartial observer. You brought in some of the strongest talent people have seen in the Attorney General's office. Um, S- Scott Harshbarger and Tom Kiley and... and Paula Gold and um, Steve <laughs> Many Rosenfeld, of them didn't
1: vote for me.
0: Ma- they famously did not vote for you. Bob Bonin, um, Margot Botsford, yeah. former Supreme Judicial Court justice. They were yeah. all people who came in. Mitch Sikora, uh, appeals court judge. Yeah, I people, didn't know any of them. And these were all people who um, worked for you and learned from you and I think developed that reputation of the attorney general's office being – you stopped the old practice of uh, part-time attorney Gs. AGs, yeah. built the law library. I'm giving you a little promotion here, but, you know, it, people, I hope, will remember that what you did starting in 1975 was really to turn around that office it is respected today in part because of the platform you built back in those days.
1: Yeah, what, what happened was I tried to pick the best people. What, Reputation-wise, after losing three elections, uh, I was a hack. And they never t- transposed their thinking I was a hack to knowing anything about the law. Mm-hmm. So I picked the best people because I had been a trial lawyer and I knew the business. Yeah. So I tried to pick the best people, and people would say to me, you should be picking people that are loyal to you. And I used to say to them, if you pick good people and you do the job right, they'll become loyal to you. And they are to this day.
0: Uh, very much so. I want to talk a little bit about politics with you.
1: Oh, by uh, the way, yeah. one last thing. Yeah, yeah. Thursday night, I forget the date, it was early uh, September, we had the 30, 31st Bloddy Dinner.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Back in 1987, when I retired, John Easton, the Republican, AG from Vermont, and Dennis Roberts, a Democratic AG from uh, Rhode Island, had a dinner for me. And he invited all the AGs in the northeast part of the country who had been Attorney General during my 12 years. We just had our 31st consecutive wow. dinner. And we used to get 24 people. We got it from Pennsylvania on up. The last one we had in September was the biggest one we ever had. We had 37 people. We had Kelly Ayotte, remember the Republican senator from New Hampshire. We had uh, Steve Merrill, Mm -hmm. governor of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And we had Dave Suda, Supreme Court Justice. And we had uh, the senator that ran for vice president one time ago. From Connecticut. Lieberman. Joe Lieberman, yeah. Joe was there. Wow. They were all there.
0: It's nice to have people who are loyal and who can testify what you had done.
1: You know the best part of it? And we talk about it among each other. About half of those guys and women are Republicans. Yeah, (laughs) Kelly Ayotte, who just lost for the United States Senator... She's more conservative than my wife, right. and that's pretty conservative.
0: <laughs> Let me ask you, how would you feel about running in today's world? I mean, what, the politics of today that's so television, techno, Twitter, Facebook-oriented um, versus the politics of 1964 or 70. What, what, give well, us a sense of what you think.
1: Back in those days, it was hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. You'd go to Franklin County, and I'd go to every town, towns people's never heard of, and the Hill people would come down, each with one delegate. And they knew you, and if you did something you didn't like, you had a chance to be confronted and solve it. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. It's all television, radio, newspapers. And I remember uh, there are more votes in Ward 14 in Boston, in Ward 18 in Boston, than they are in all of Franklin County. Mm-hmm. I went to every town and house in that county. Today, nobody stops there unless they get a flat tire. <laughs> there aren't no folks there. So, what was more personal then is gone now. I think people worry, politicians now worry about what's politically correct. We didn't worry that much about that in those days. And we knew each other, and we liked each other, and we could argue, get down in the dirt, and then be friends. Can't do that anymore. It's gone. It's very different. And I think it's going to get worse, and you're going to have more people losing like uh, Mike Capuano and I think that's changed forever. I don't think it's going back. Yeah. People think it's a phenomenon. I don't. I think the population has shifted. Uh, outside is a winning.
0: I would argue, as I said earlier, that Ayanna Presley, in a, in a way, did what you did in 1964. She took on an incumbent. People said that's whatever, disloyal or she's not waiting her turn. They said that about you. But I think there are political cycles, and there was, you know, you had one in 1964. We're experiencing one in 2018, and I agree. I think that, I think there's a huge shift in the way, the parties are thinking about themselves. I also think, that um, we've lost a little bit of the human, interaction and touch.
1: I'll tell you, Jimmy, what I believe. I believe that the, leadership of the Democratic Party today is not what it was in the things that I believed in. I I grew up poor, and I could never have become a lawyer if it hadn't been for the GI Bill, a Democratic program. And when I got out of the Navy in 46, they had a thing called the 5220 Club. For those of us who had no idea where we were going, we had 52 weeks and we get $20 a week. People forget those things. Mm. That's not what this party is about. They spend more time on women's bathrooms they, when they do for jobs for people. And I think, to a great degree, a lot of that party has left me.
0: Well, um, before we end this, which we're going to close this podcast, let me ask you if you wanted to... How about just giving a little sense of the future? Like, what do you see as you look ahead in terms of the Massachusetts political landscape, in terms of the people who are who are players here? and Are you hopeful? Are you concerned?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I happen to like <laughs> Mara Healy quite a bit, and I think she's a great potential leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like Debbie Goldberg and... and Suzanne Bump always handled that area where she came from when she was a rep for me. I think you've got some good people, but I see something that's going away from the personal and political correctness mm-hmm. is becoming dominant. And that's, in my opinion, a tragedy. Because mm-hmm. a lot of if you believe something, you should do it. I try to tell young people in the business. Do what you think is right, what you believe, and don't worry about what's politically correct because sooner or later, people are going to trust you. And that's what I think part of my strength was at the end that people trust you. Right. And the more you have Facebook and television and social media, people young people don't even know how to spell anymore. Never mind put a sentence together. So that the personal part of it, in my opinion, is gone forever, forever. It'll never come back. And that's, in my opinion, a tragedy. Because people, in way back in my time, in the old days, if people didn't like you, they could get up and say it to you and you could argue with them. And I remember there was a, I had to uh, appeal with Greg Anbrick, who, who was uh, Secretary of Public Health, on busing against the Boston School Committee. Mm-hmm. Now, when, when I was running, I was against busing. I'm mm-hmm. always against busing. <clears throat> so I had the guy that had it sitting before me in the governor's council room. He said, I made a mistake. Busing isn't any good. No one ever printed that. Yeah. So there was this guy, Andy Donovan, from South Boston. I went to his wait, and he had an anti-busing pin on in his casket. <laughs> and he used to say, yell at me because he thought I was going back on my word of busing. So we went to uh, the senator from Ward 17's fundraiser, and I said to him, Andy, you yell at me all the time. I said, let's you and I go outside. I'm going to punch you out. <laughs> and we became the best of friends after that. If I needed anything to register, I'd call Andy. And I loved him until the day he died. Yeah. But we were really enemies in the beginning. And Billy Bulger, he and I hated each other. I have dinner with Billy. <laughs> and Steve Murphy about every two or three months. All right. we're, we're good friends now. Those days are gone. Well, Frank, um,
0: for, thank you for doing this. Thank you for sharing some of your experiences with the listeners of the Commonwealth Magazine podcast, the CODcast. And thank you, listeners, for taking this uh, excursion through Massachusetts political history with us today. I hope it was interesting, informative, and enlightening. And um, Frank, maybe we'll have you back next year to, to opine about...
1: I hope I'm still here. I hope you're
0: still here, too. You're looking pretty good. Thank you all, and we'll see you on the podcast.